Rushmore. Anybody ever been to Mount Rushmore? Okay, Mount Rushmore is this amazing place. And I remember driving here and all of a sudden I, I see carved out of the granite hillside these huge, huge figures. Huge figures. And it had the faces of four, four presidents. They're good-looking men. Um, I was thinking about maybe I should add some other ones, you know, memorable ones. But their faces symbolized uh, more than just their individual lives. It wasn't just like, oh, he was, he was a really good guy or he had some really good morals. They represent monumental moments in our American history. Monumental moments. And today, in our study of Exodus, we are introduced to a Rushmore figure in biblical history. Moses. Moses is this monumental man that is introduced to us. He's a, he's a reluctant leader called by God to lead the, the nation of Israel out of Egypt and then into their new identity as God's people. He is one who receives God's law for God's people. He, God heard the cry of his people, and he delivered them through the leadership of this man named Moses. However, this book, this book Exodus, is not primarily about Moses, is it? Even though he's one of the primary figures, this book is not about Moses. It's about God. And as I said last week, Israel is the canvas upon which God paints a portrait of his own glory. And the same is true with Moses. It is, Moses is a blank slate upon which God displays for the whole world to see his glory to the world, to the nations. So over the next 16 months, each section of Exodus will show us something new about who God is and what God is about. Every part of the book is just a different angle, a different take on, on God. The first six chapters fit well under the title of The God Who Hears. The God Who Hears. But eventually we're going to be talking about the God who redeems, the God who provides, the God who commands, the God who is holy, and the God who is near. So my hope is that as we study this book for the next 16 months together, you will not just know more stories about Israel, not know more stories about Moses. My prayer is that you will know what God is like and then understand how that God adopts you and brings you into his story. So hopefully you remember from last week, this book is absolutely important for us understanding our Christian faith, and it's very foundational. Salvation, as we know it in the New Testament, had its dawning in Exodus. Prior to this book, there was no understanding as of the Lamb of God. There was no understanding of the Passover. There was no understanding of unleavened bread. There was no understanding of the priesthood. There was no understanding of the sacrificial system. There was no understanding of the I Am. God as I am. This book is vital to your understanding for these life-changing truths. It tells us as New Testament believers of slavery to sin. It tells us of freedom in Christ. It tells us of our positional righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it tells us of the seriousness of sin. Exodus is critical, as I said last week, to our spiritual lives. 
Alec Matir, uh, said this of Exodus. Throw this slide up good. There is a contemporary reality about the Word of God. So that when we read Exodus, we are not just learning of the past. We are learning for the future. This is a living word for us. Exodus is a living word for us. And so our text this morning, we are going to see how God delivers his people who are in dark, dark days through absolutely surprising ways. So you got to see that nice little rhyming pastor thing? God, has, God is going to save his people who are in dark days through absolutely surprising ways. And God has heard the cry of his people. He is on the move to deliver them. And in this divine assistance will come the birth of a baby into a very dangerous environment. The first chapter of Exodus sets the whole stage for us. Last week we learned that Israel was just growing numerically. They were becoming almost this this internal threat for the people of Egypt. And they were scared to death that they, they could be a national security threat for us. And so as a result, these nationalistic-minded government, they began dealing shrewdly with them. They began to afflict them. They began to oppress them. And then they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And Egypt feared that Israel would become powerful, maybe side with her enemies and become an enemy in their midst. Therefore, there was a governmental policy of oppression, hard oppression, in hopes to suppress their growth and to suppress their influence. And when the bitter conditions did not work, when it backfired on them, Pharaoh resorted to a program of killing infant Hebrew children. In verse 15, we find that uh, the king of Egypt called upon two midwives, Shifra and Pua. And it's very interesting to notice that these two women were personally named in this text. They were called out of, there were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Hebrew women and men and children, but specifically these two women were named. They were probably in charge of other Hebrew midwives and they were likely childless women, but without giving too much of the story away, it is believed that they were personally listed here because of the courage that they displayed in the following verses. They are hailed as heroes who are later blessed by God because of their faithfulness. But Pharaoh made clear his instructions, and they were sinister. In verse 16, he said, When you serve as a midwife to a Hebrew woman and see, see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill them. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. It seems that Pharaoh's first step was to quietly figure out a way for these male babies to be killed. And since word would have likely spread around the Israelites if these women were suspected of killing, uh, actively killing babies, it seems like Pharaoh wanted these women to figure out a way to deceive the birth parents into thinking that their male babies had died in childbirth. And Pharaoh, for even his own protection, is advocating the private and deceptive killing of infants. Because think about it. Mass graves would raise too many suspicions. So killing them one at a time 
was a better plan. Verse 17 tells us what these, these midwives did. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the male children live. They feared God and let the children live. Notice the text is very clear. Their relationship and their, their awe and respect of God. They feared God. And this means they had respect and honor for obedience to God, which was far greater than the, a fear and reverence and respect for the, the king, the pharaoh. They engaged in civil disobedience. Something that every believer, brothers and sisters, every believer should be prepared to do if and when it is necessary. They chose to obey God rather than man. Does that, those of you who have been around the, our series through Acts, should that sound familiar at all? Biblical history is filled with men and women who refuse to violate their conscience and choose to disobey rulers who ask them to disobey God. Peter and the apostles were told to stop preaching in Jesus' name. And they said, we must obey God rather than man. Acts 5. Rather than take the lives of innocent children, Shifra and Pua refused to obey the orders of the wicked ruler. Now, I cannot pass by this text without saying a few words of our own cultural situation. Throw up the next slide for me, Connor. Anybody familiar with these numbers? Anybody? You could probably tell me what those numbers are, right? Do you know what they stand for? Good. I didn't expect you to. Well, this week I did a little bit of research uh, in the U.S. and Illinois Department of Health, my stomach turned. 1.1 million children in 2012 were aborted. 1.1 million. Of that 1.1 million, 43,202 were done in the state of Illinois. In Cook County, 24, almost 25,000 were in Cook County. And in our own backyard, 1,500 children were aborted. Those numbers should break your heart. In our nice, really nice suburban area, in our, in our little neck of the woods, children are being killed. And I hope that you hear that these numbers are, not more than, are more than just a statistic. Each life is important, and each life is valuable. And part of the problem, part of the problem is that there is no mass graves to raise our outrage, right? We don't see it. We don't see gravestones being added on a daily basis. We don't see 1.1 little crosses in a, in a cemetery of every life that has been taken. There is, this is a tragedy, over a million babies in, in our country, much like in Egypt, are being aborted. I hope you also notice, take note of the fact of Pharaoh's rationale. His rationale sounds very familiar as to ours. It is a very unnatural thing to desire the death of a de defenseless child. 
in order to justify the murder of these children, something had to eclipse the conscience. And in Pharaoh's case, it was the protection of a nation. Pharaoh wanted to protect his nation, something near and dear to him, so he will do whatever it takes to protect and give them comfort. The male children had to die in order to protect their way of life. Does that sound familiar at all? Our cultural problem is that we don't uh, value life. Our problem is that we value other things more. And that was exactly the problem in Egypt. The lives of these children were expendable because they were, there was something far more important to them. I also want you to notice that these women were prepared to take action at even a great personal risk. While culturally, we're not at a point of civil disobedience where, where that is required, but I do feel like the day is getting closer and closer where even our children may someday have to... Ha- Rise up in civil disobedience. But until that day comes, I want, you to incur- I want to encourage you to do at least two things. Number one, financially give to organizations that are on the front line of this battle. Two, vote for people in every level of the government who matches your values, especially when it comes to clear biblical issues like the sanctity of life and the preservation of biblical marriage. And some of you are kind of getting a little uncomfortable because uh, I'm becoming political. You're going, you know what, you're crossing the line, this is church and state issue. I I want you to, I, I know that these are political issues, but long before they were political issues, They were spiritual issues. Spiritual issues. Moving on. Verse 18, we discover that the Pharaoh learns that his plan is not working at all. And it may have, some people believe that it may have taken quite a few years for the government to realize that these, that there are still the same amount of male children as there was originally. In fact, they're kind of growing. And so when it wasn't, when he became very clear that they, he was not being obeyed, he called the two women to him and said, what have you, why have you done this and let the children live? And the midwives gave an answer that some people think is a lie. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Well, some people argue that the women lied and that there, there's nothing wrong with it because Pharaoh, as a wicked leader, gave up his right to be truthfully obeyed. The other possibility is that these women were in fact telling the truth. The the Hebrew women started giving birth without the midwives because Shifra and Puah sent word that they ought not to use the midwives or perhaps they aided delivery until the very end. Regardless, regardless, it was clear that these women made the right choice because it says in verses 20 and 21, so God dealt with well with the midwives and the the people multiplied and grew very strong and because the midwives feared God what did God do he gave them families so God blessed the women and the nation because of their choice so what did Pharaoh do 
he ramped up his campaign of death. Rather than only use the midwives to accomplish his evil plan, he enlisted the entire nation to accomplish his plans. He said, he said to the entire nation, every son that is born to, a, to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter, daughter live. He says this corporately to the nation. Pharaoh issued a nationwide decree of genocide. No male baby shall be safe. And certainly there were official military sweeps of the Israelite uh, residents, but there was also just this overarching fear that no one was safe. Any Israelite woman or man walking with a child could have that little boy taken out of their hands and thrown into the Nile. You need to take note to this reference even of the Nile in Pharaoh's command. Why is it important? Why did God mention the Nile? Is it just because it's a geographic point for us to kind of, oh, okay, this is where it all took place? I think there's more to it. First, it was convenient and easy, easily accessible way for babies to be killed. According to Doug Stewart's commentary, he said this, Throwing a baby into the Nile was a lot easier and quicker, involving no cleanup and leaving no evidence than almost any other means of killing. The child would simply fall into the water and disappear, out of sight and hopefully, from the Egyptian point of view, out of mind. Secondly, it was, it was easier for them from a moral standpoint. You see, Egypt was a nation that had a whole pantheon of gods, numerous kinds of gods, and the Nile was a god. It was the god who gave and took life. That's what the Nile god did. And so by throwing the infant into the river, the Egyptians may have believed, or else they were led to believe, that they were doing the will of the gods and giving the Nile its proper due amongst all the other gods. Egypt had become dark with death, and it had mixed, it was mixed with their religious views. Does it sound something like our world today? And this connection to the Nile River and death by water is important to understand in light of what will happen later in Exodus. Turning to the, the Nile to blood, the killing of the firstborn of every family, the crossing of the Red Sea, the drowning of Pharaoh's army are all symbolic in meaning. The story or the song of Moses that he sings says this, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. Even though the Egyptians literally rode into the Red Sea, from a justice vantage point, they were cast into the sea, much like the babies that were cast into the sea. You, you see, water is often associated in the Bible with evil or judgment. The flood in Genesis chapter 6 is an indictment of God's judgment upon the world. You see in the Red Sea in Exodus 14, it is an indictment on Egypt. God's judgment is being taken place. But we are not just isolated readers of Scripture. We, we need to understand from Genesis to Revelation, this is the entire story of how God works out. So we can even look in Revelation 21. And Revelation 21 describes the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to Revelation 21, verse 1. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Why was there, why, why is, why is John pick up on this? Because in heaven there will be no more judgment. There will be no evil. The Nile is more than just a river. It represents something far more significant. And when you put this all together, there is a clear sense that there were dark days in Egypt, and Egypt opens with a tragic and a hopeless setting. The Israelites were experiencing opposition, ruthless slavery. They were experiencing a governmental policy of genocide. And like during the days of Jesus' birth and the killing of children in Bethlehem, it's hard to imagine a more desperate situation. I want you to think, those of you who are parents, the fear that would be going into your heart. You You have, as a mother, just given birth to a baby boy. And instead of just your heart jumping for joy, looking at it and saying, I will name this child Isaac, for he brings me laughter and joy. Instead, your heart is immediately looking and fearing and scared to death because you know at any moment that child can be ripped out of your hands and thrown into the Nile, never to be seen again. And every time you get pregnant, your heart is scared to death as to what is going to be happening. And you are in this period of fear and going, God, would you just come? Would you deliver us? Would you heal us? Would you protect us from these people? These are dark, dark days. And these dark days in Egypt are vital to understanding the story of redemption. The hopelessness of the situation. The hopelessness that these parents felt makes God's deliverance of his people even more glorious. He's a God who hears. And he's the God who saves. In the New Testament, we hear a similar tone when it comes to the story of salvation. Our problem is not slavery in Egypt. It was our spiritual deadness, hopelessness. Listen to Ephesians 2 and find your place in this section. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, You were once that person among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, dead, dead, dead under the wrath of God. But then the next verse, two hopeful words, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. And that's when we as the redeemed go, Woohoo! God has saved us. We were dead. We were hopeless. There was nothing that we could do to bring about life. We were stuck here, slaves to sin. But God. But God, the story of Exodus is a story of redemption in a hopeless and a dangerous and an evil environment. And God rescued his people. 
The days were dark and ominous, but God is about to move. God is about to move. And it's really kind of fun if you stand back and read this story, but sometimes we just read it kind of through the Prince of Egypt kind of lens, you know, Disney kind of lens, or the flannel graphs. Those of you who remember flannel graphs, remember, okay, here he is, here's a little basket, move that along, and oh, here comes uh, the, the, the princess of, of Egypt. Oh, you remember what happened? Oh, here's Miriam, this is the daughter. And we just get caught up in storytelling. This is, God is on the move of deliverance. But so immediately after, immediately after this dark picture of chapter one, the birth of Moses is introduced. In a familiar pattern we see in the New Testament with Jesus' birth, we have the deliverance stage set with the birth of a baby into very difficult circumstances. But we also see God's providential care and protection of this deliverer baby at the hand of three women. We see his mother, his sister, and Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 1 of chapter 2 begins with the identification of the family's lineage into which Moses was born. Don't skip by that too easy. It's not just a genealogy section here. It is critical. The child's father and mother were both born of the tribe of Levi. And that's critical. Right now, it doesn't make much sense because later on, it's going to build out from that. This is important because later, the tribe of Levi will be the tribe of priests. Tribe of priests. And they were chosen by God to provide spiritual leadership to this nation. Moses will be the first of many mediator leaders from this special tribe. The first. And according to verse 2, Moses' mother defied the Egyptian law about killing the male babies, and she hid him for three months. Those of you, if you just heard Rhoda back there, you know how difficult it is to hide a child, especially the older that they get. You know, sometimes there's that kind of cooing cry, but then there's the blood-curdling cry that you go, I have no clue what's wrong with you. And for three months... Moses' mother was hiding and protecting this child. And when it became impractical and also unsafe to keep him around their home, she determined to hide him in a basket. And this Hebrew word for basket is significant. It is the same word that is translated ark in the story of the flood. Isn't that cool? So you got the big ark, you know, big as a football field, and then you got the ark carrying one man. And the parallels here are obvious of Noah and his family. And it should be obvious to us. And once again, God saved his people through the protection of an ark. However, this time it was a small basket floating on the sacred Nile. And beyond the spiritual significance, the ark was very practical. After three months, this baby was getting very difficult to hide. So the mother decided, you know what? We need to, during the day, hide this child out by the riverside because they are going to be looking for children where we live. So we are going to put him in an ark and set him by the river. And we are going to set my daughter posted like a guard to make sure that nothing happened. And what happens is truly remarkable. What happens next? Pharaoh had a very large family with many outposts along the Nile River. And one of Pharaoh's daughters came down to the river to bathe. And what did she do? 
she discovered the basket ark. And after it was brought to her, she recognized that it was an Israelite baby. And you can imagine the uncertainty as to what would happen after Pharaoh's daughter learned that it was an Israelite boy. And you can imagine Miriam's heart as she watched that baby becoming unwrapped and them holding it and they recognized this was a Hebrew baby. She was scared to death. But by God's providence, she took pity on him. Miriam, who was watching over the basket, quickly and wisely inquired, hey, do you need somebody to nurse this child, to care for this child? And this, this, there's a dramatic moment that kind of hinges on one word. You know, she, she puts herself out there and says, do you, would you like somebody to care for this child, somebody to nurse this child for you? She's doing a lot of assumption at this point, and anything could go. She could order at that moment that the child be thrown out into the Nile. You have broken my father's laws. Therefore, judgment shall be brought upon this child. But no, Pharaoh's daughter says, go. Go. And after an introduction between Moses' mother and the soon-to-be-adopted mother, Pharaoh's daughter says, take the child away and nurse him for me. I love this, and I will even give you wages. Isn't that, isn't that how God works? You think you got it all under control? Oh, not only if you be faithful, if you are faithful, I will also reward you in ways that you cannot even calculate. You get to keep your child, and on top of that, you receive wages. That's how God works. Now, just consider what happened. In the midst of a culture where babies are being killed, this one was put into hiding, only be, to be discovered by, by Pharaoh's household, and he's put under the protection of the royal family as, a, as his own mother, his birth mother, is paid to nurse him until the one day he is to be delivered to Pharaoh's household and become an adopted son. Only God can orchestrate these kinds of events. And it's amazing of his providential care and his providential protection. Every detail in this story was directed by a gracious God whose aim was to rescue his people. Every part of it. And isn't it remarkable to consider all the divinely designed details in this story? You, you could just kind of go, oh, look at how this, and how this, oh my goodness, this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And it's easy to look into the story of Moses and his how he will become the deliverer, and then forget our story. How God is divinely directing our lives for our good. I, I think about even how God brought me and my family to Missio Day Church. I was born and raised some 300 miles away from here. And out of pain, out of uh, a lot of hurt because of childhood sexual abuse, I needed to escape my hometown and run away and find a new start. And that new start was at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois. I, God, I, I just, I decided that I needed to get away, right? No, it, God was even designing and implementing all these things. And then through that, I, I had, had a friend there. Her name was Nadia Swearingen at that time, and she signed me up for a terrible thing. 
she signed me up to, for an interview at this place called Camp Manitoba in Frankfurt. I had no desire whatsoever. In fact, I wanted to run away from God, but she signed me up against my will for an interview. I gave the world's most awful interview because I did not want to work there. A couple weeks later, what happened? You got a job. What? Are you serious? Little did I, and it was that summer at the age of 19 where all of a sudden, all the lights, all the whistles, everything went off, and it's like, God said, you are mine. And I go, yes. And I profess my faith in Christ. After growing up in a Christian culture and Christian schools all my life, it was at that moment where God said, boom, this, this is the time. And I found out that Camp Manitoba at that time hired for two different kinds of people. The type that Camp Manitoba needs to accomplish their mission and their vision, and the kind that need Camp Manitoba. I fell into the latter camp. <laughs> but again, this was God's working out. And it was there that Laura and I worked together. I worked there for three summers. She worked there for seven summers. And we, we built kind of a love-hate relationship. But, you know, that's, we parted ways. And then we came together because I, I was working at a young adult ministry in, in Orland Park. And I invited her, just why don't you just come be a part of it? She was reluctant. You know, I'm done with this young adult kind of stuff. And, and it was through that process that uh, even she became... Uh, the program director at Camp Manitoba at that time, a job that I interviewed and I turned down, but God placed her in that spot. And then even then, I thought, you know what? This is going to be a difficult time in her life. I should be praying for her. I should be ministering to her with no desire to date her. But what did God do? The July of that summer, my heart changed and her heart changed, and we decided to start dating for marriage. Who would have thunk if you knew us back then? We were oil and water. We still kind of are sometimes, right? Uh, <laughs> oil and water. But yet God was orchestrating all these. These aren't just random haphazard things coming together. This is a God-orchestrated kind of thing. And then we, when we got married, we reluctantly, for Laura, went to Peace Community Church and we started worshiping there. But it was through uh, even moral failure in the church where the church was worshiping near a thousand, and then all of a sudden moral failure happened in its leadership. It came down to 200, and the church had to ask some big questions about who are we and what are we doing? And after a couple of years of questioning that, the church asked Laura and I, would you be willing to start our first church plant? God is at work behind. We, we could not have orchestrated that. Are you serious? And sometimes when I think about things like this, it makes me tremble because it seems like life can go one direction or another direction with the smallest and the tiniest decisions and events. And we get so landlocked and fearful about what's going to happen. But on the other hand, when you know a kind and gracious God is behind every event and every decision, you can rest in his sovereign plan. And he knows what he's doing. Even down to the finest details. So this section ends with a baby being given a name. However, this is the first time it's mentioned in the, and he, he's given the name Moses, and we just kind of grown up, you know, he's the prince of Egypt, and we get to know Moses. The Egyptian name Moses has significant meaning. It was chosen because it sounded like the word which means to draw out and his adoptive mother gave him the name because she drew him out of the water. But 
Don't miss the intended irony here. Remember what I told you about the connection between water and judgment, trial and evil? The name Moses implies that out of a great season of hardship and trial comes one who will deliver and draw people out. Out of the very river into which Pharaoh was ordering babies to be drowned, what happened? A baby is drawn out by the daughter of the Pharaoh. The name Moses means to draw out. And it was by this man that the people of Israel would be drawn out of Egypt to meet their God and to become his people. Moses will be a leader to draw out people. So in the midst of this very dark and this very difficult time, God was orchestrating the adoption of Moses in order to eventually draw out his people from slavery. So from this ash heap of suffering comes a glimmer of hope. And looking back, you can see it so clearly of God working these things out. But at the time, no one knew that God had already set into motion these events that would eventually lead to the liberation of these people. They, they had no clue. And so from the banks of some nondescript place along the Nile River, God provided deliverance for his people. And isn't that how God always works? In some nondescript place in Iowa, I went through some, some crappy stuff, and God drew me out, and I've been able to see life in myself, new life in Christ, and been able to see new life take place in some of your lives and other people's lives, and that's how God works. And Moses, the greatest leader of Israel, was drawn out of the very waters used to kill children, and God delivers people from dark days. Some of you know what I'm talking about, dark days. God will deliver you out of your dark days in some surprising earth-shattering, surprising ways. But, as you read this text, you cannot help but remember the way in which God brought about the ultimate deliverance in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. He also came as a baby, born from the right tribe and in the right city. His birth was equally nondescript. Don't take Luke 2 for, for granted, you know. And in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Huh. Amazing how God works all these things together. And then there was this baby that was born in a what? A, a manger in the stable, a stinky animal house. And he was born in a nondescript place. And he was also in danger of being killed as an infant. And he too is a deliverer. Listen to the parallels in Exodus to what we read in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. <laughs> Think about it. The fullness of time, God's going, okay. Much like pregnancy, it is time. It is time for this child to come. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
Exodus supports the overall story of the Bible about deliverance that comes through Jesus Christ. He was born of a woman, born under the law, so that what? We might receive adoption. Jesus was born into the world and was born and lived in brokenness while committing absolutely no sin and then died on the cross in order to provide freedom and forgiveness for people who were enslaved to sin. The Israelites were enslaved physically and God delivered them through Moses. And that story is foundational to the greater story of God's deliverance of anyone of anyone who puts their faith and their trust in Christ. Listen to how Paul puts it in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. Do you hear the shadows and the the exodus stuff going on there? Jesus delivers people from the domain of darkness And it is Jesus who provides the ultimate freedom, the ultimate redemption. It is Jesus who frees those who put their faith in him from the slavery of their own sin. The story of Moses is about a baby who was delivered by his people, delivered his people from the slavery of sin to become God's people. But the ultimate story is about another baby, the Son of God, who dies the undeserved death on the cross so that sins the sins of those who believe in him would be totally paid for and washed away. In Exodus, the baby, the the deliverer is Moses because she drew him out of the water. But in the New Testament, the deliverer's name is Jesus because he saves people from their sins. So I want you to hear this. And I want you to get this. God is mighty to save. Period. God is mighty to save. And there is no case, get this through your head, there is no case that he is not able to cope with. None. And because of this, we can trust him entirely for our salvation. You think you are a hopeless case? You think you are drowning and never going to get out of this this pit, this mire, this situation? You need to understand your God. He is mighty to save, and your case is nothing. And his greatest desire is to save those that he calls. And if we trust him for it, if you trust him for it, we can trust in him for all the blessings of it. So brothers and sisters, as big as we are, as small as we are, there's probably someone here who's tugging, going, you're right. Either it's for my salvation the first time, or as I'm struggling in my situation now, I need to be reminded that there's no problem too big that God cannot save me from it. Put your hope in him, the one who does save. Let's pray.